Uh, we're back in Mark. Mark chapter 2 we're headed to tonight. Mark chapter 2. I'm just going to read verses 18 to 22 tonight. Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. And we read there, And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast. And they came and said unto him, Why did the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. No man also sews a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. And no man puts new wine into old bottles, else the new wine does burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred, but new wine must be put into new bottles. And let's pray. Father, I just ask on behalf of our church, Lord, I just ask that you'll speak to us tonight, that we'll hear your voice through your word, and, and we'll hear the message that, of the new wine that's come to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we have here in our text is Jesus is being confronted by the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day. And they've just been getting progressively more irritated and shocked by his teachings and his actions that he's done. So he's not living up according to their traditions and interpretations of the law is what's the problem. Because they'd taken the Ten Commandments, we said last time, and expanded them all the way out to 613 do's and don'ts. And we know from what Jesus said in Matthew 23, all those 613 do's and don'ts just became a burden to the people. Because they might have had good intentions starting off, but it became a barrier, according to our Lord, to ministering life to people. The very people that should be ministering life, the Pharisees, <laughs> that was stopped. Because he told them in Matthew 23, he says, You bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and you lay them on men's shoulders. But he says, You yourselves will not move them with one of your fingers. He says, But all your works you do for to be seen of men. And he went on to say to these people, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. He says, For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, neither allow ye them that are entering to go in. So he's saying all these rules and regulations, all this touch not, taste not, stay away from sinners, all these purity regulations, he's saying you're not getting into heaven yourself, and you're actually keeping those that would be entering in from getting in is what he's telling them. So we have here in verse 18 that we just read, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees, they're coming to Jesus with a question. And the question is, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, verse 18, but thy disciples fast not? And I heard somebody say this. I thought this was a good point to make. And have you ever noticed that Jesus spends a lot of time answering questions? throughout the gospel. So like, just look right here in chapter 2. Look in verse 7. Here's a question. They ask, why does this man, 2-7, thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And then look down in verse 16, another question. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, another question, how is it that he eats and drinks with publicans and sinners? And then the question we just have here in 18, how come you guys aren't fasting? And Jesus turns it around down in chapter 3, verse 4, and asks them a question that they would have been wondering. And he says, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And it says they held their peace. So it seems like he's spending a lot of time answering questions when he could be out ministering or teaching or whatever. But no, he's having to deal with these questions, constantly answering questions. But here's the thing. These questions are questions that they had that day. They're the same questions people have today because they don't understand. They didn't then, and people don't today, our Lord and his purpose and his mission because man has misconceptions they always have about God's intentions and his true way of salvation. 
And so what's helping them and him answering their questions because it's written down. And, you know, you think about it, it's a limited amount of things that are written down. And we're getting a lot of these questions answered. So you can't say, man, I'm kind of bored with this. Well, who cares about what they're asking about fasting? Well, it must be important. God put this in all three of the what's called the synoptic gospels, all of them but John. So it must be important because it answers questions we have. So we have the disciples of John coming to Jesus with this question. And I think it kind of seems odd to me in a way when you think about that because John had pointed to him. He says, this is the one that's greater than I, the forerunner. who I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelaces. And they're coming and asking him, you know, what are you doing? What's your ministry all about? How come you're eating and drinking with sinners? That seems kind of odd. But the Pharisees coming to him like that, now that's another matter. So we know that if you read the Old Testament, there was only one required fast according to the law, according to the Old Testament. And that was in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement. All Jews were required to fast on that day. Now, there's other fasts that we have recorded in the Old Testament, but they weren't required fasts. They were generally people needing help and crying out to God. But the Pharisees had done what? They had turned one day a year into two days out of the week. And so the Pharisees would fast every Monday and every Thursday is when they would fast. And so they had gotten it to the point in Jesus' day that if you were serious about God or you were serious about religion, you fasted two days a week. And part of that is it was a sign of atonement for sin, humiliation, and just penance before God. It just shows you're just a pious person. And so anyone that didn't do that, they looked down on them. Only the pious. If you're not pious, you'll at least fast those two days out of the week. And so if you put something there in Mark 2, turn over to Luke 18. And we'll see where the problem was with that. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. And in Luke 18, beginning in verse 9, it says this, Jesus spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. And the Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. And what does he say? I fast twice in the week and I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. So here's the thing. The Pharisees were not fasting to seek God's face for direction or for his help or in genuine contrition or for his power in his lives. They didn't do that for any of those reasons. But they did it as a means that they thought it was making them right in the eyes of God, right before him. And that is the definition of self-righteousness. So they trusted in themselves and what we're doing. This is what makes us righteous. Fasting. Double fasters. They're twice as fast as anybody else. They're fasting all the time, right? And here's the thing, a person like that that is trusting in themselves and their works, and it's a, it's a thing that all of us can fall into. It's an easy snare for all of us to fall into. But what does it say about his prayer? Look at in verse 11. Who's he praying? Who's hearing that prayer? Nobody. It says he's praying with himself. God's not hearing that prayer of a self-righteous person. And I would say what we're having here, go back to Mark what we're having here in the, this account of Mark's, I think God in his wisdom, he's probably having this whole thing where Jesus is eating with these publicans and sinners. I think in his wisdom, he's probably doing that on a Monday or a Thursday just to get under these guys' skin, right? So here they are. They're all fasting, and they got these, we know, they got these long faces, and it's just killing them, you know? And they're looking over there, and here's Jesus. They know what's going on in that house. They're laughing. They're having a good time. They're having a party. And that is just eating at them. <laughs> and so here's the thing. Nothing makes a legalist more mad or infuriates him more than when someone doesn't obey their rules. And these guys are not liking this. They're not liking what they're seeing Jesus doing. So they ask him, you know, what are you doing? 
You're supposed to be a holy man. You're not like us. What are you doing? Not obeying our laws. And he gives them an answer there in Mark 19 and 20, Mark 2, 19 and 20. He says, well, can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? He said, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. It's impossible. But he said, the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. He says, and then shall they fast. Well, let me say, you know, some people take that. Do you think Jesus is saying that fasting is legalism? Is, is that the point he's making there? I don't think so. But here's the thing. It can be. It's all a matter of the heart. You know, so to say, for us to say here, for me to stand up here and say, hey, you've got to fast every Monday and Thursday or every Wednesday or once a month, and that's what you have to do to be right with God or to be considered holy, to set down those kind of regulations, that would be legalism, wouldn't it? Because I'm saying that's what you have to do to be right with God. It's nowhere in the Bible. That would be legalism to say that. So Paul, think about this. On the other hand, though, Paul, well, he says of himself, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And so he would have been just like that man. He says he was in Luke 18, just like that Pharisee, proud of himself, despising others, that they don't do what he does, fasting twice a week, those sinners. They need to get their act together. That's the way Paul would have been. But listen, when he got saved on the road to Damascus, truly saved, did he give up fasting altogether at that point? So we're saying, is fasting in and of itself legalism? I say it's a matter of the heart. Because in Acts 13, we have him and all the elders, the chief people there, the prophets, the teachers, the leaders in the church at Antioch. What are they doing? They're fasting. They're seeking God, not to gain his favor, but to get his direction. They're not trying to gain favor. They're not saying this is making us more pious and holy than anywhere else. They're like, we need your help. We need your direction. And in 6, 2 Corinthians 6, 5, Paul said that he was in watchings and fastings. Many times he fasted. Probably fasted for the sake of churches, fasted for direction. I mean, we just have the one account in Acts 13. I'm sure Paul fasted many times. And it talks in the New Testament about the prophetess, Anna, an 84-year-old widow, said she did not depart from the temple, but she served God. Here's how she served God, not to gain his favor, but it says she served God with fastings and prayers night and day, Luke 2.37, Anna the prophetess. So is that legalism that she did that? No, that was between her and the Lord. That was a matter of the heart. So Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, that's what he's saying. Fasting is a matter of the heart. That's what God's looking at when you do it. It's not a requirement. But he did say, when you fast. Moreover, when you fast, as they say, not if, if you're a New Testament Christian. When you fast, he says, so he's assuming you will, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. He says, truly I say unto you, they have their reward. He says, but when you fast, when we fast, he says to do what? Don't let anybody know. Clean yourself up. Look happy. He says, anoint your head, wash your face, that you appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father, which is in secret, and thy Father, which is in secret, shall reward thee. So I want to just talk a minute about legalism because we're kind of talking about it right now. So anything, listen, anything can be made legalism. Fasting, giving, what you watch, what you wear, how many vacations you take. You can take anything and make it legalism. So the New Testament does not give all this minutia. 613, this is exactly how you live out your life, does it? It doesn't do that like the Jews had, like, they, like the Pharisees had done to the Jews. They dictated, I mean, every aspect of those people's lives. But what does the New Testament do? We're taught principles, aren't we? We're taught principles, and then we are to be led by whom? The Spirit. And how we put those principles into practice, how to live those principles out. So let me give you, and I'm not picking on women. I don't have one of those problems, but this is just what came to me. So for an illustration, the New Testament, it teaches modesty of dress. My wife could quote this right off the bat. 1 Timothy 2.9 says, in like manner, Paul wrote, also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety. So he starts that off, he says, in modest apparel. 
The NAU says proper clothing. The NIV says to dress modestly. The NET says suitable apparel. So in case then that you don't quite know what that would mean, Paul goes on to add shamefacedness and sobriety, King James. I'm like, what? I mean, how many of you go around accusing somebody of not having shamefacedness? So what that word means, the NAU tells us it means modestly and discreetly. The NIV says with decency and propriety. And that is as far as it goes for the most part, right? But that, to me, goes a long way. <laughs> if you're filled with the Holy Spirit and have a heart to please God, that goes a long way. Now, legalism would say, and it was almost like that in our groups, like way back when, it seemed to me that you have to wear a jean skirt down to your ankles because, I mean, they were everywhere. And it's almost like that was the uh, suit you or the, uh, what do you call it, the uh, uniforms, thank you, uniforms that were passed out in our church. I mean, and that'd be legalism, like if you don't have one of those on, there is something wrong with you. You actually have something that looks nice. What's wrong with you? <laughs> all right, those are, those, no problem with those, all right? Or if somebody says, hey, I'm not reading there that the only thing you can wear is dresses and no pants. And I understand the Old Testament about a woman should not wear that pertains to a man. But here's the thing. A sister that has a right heart, she's going to read that modestly and proper clothing, and decency, and propriety. Here's the thing. She is not going to dress like Tammy Faye Baker. Crazy, right? Gaudy, right? She's not going to dress like that, something that's going to draw attention to you if you don't know who she is, all right? And a lot of you people might not. <laughs> or, on the other hand, I don't think a sister that has a heart that's right with God is going to read that, and I'm just... For, for something maybe everybody can relate to now, they're not going to dress like the women on Fox News at noon. That you can't watch that because they got dresses on. So is the dress, is that what it's all about? Or is it the modesty that's important? They got dresses on. I mean, those dresses show every curve and then some and most of their leg. And I'm saying, does that fit the principle, the principle that we see here? And I'd say it really doesn't. So dresses or pants, I don't believe, is the issue. But what is the issue? Modesty. In the sight of God, most, most of all, I would say in the sight of God. Your Lord, Jesus, that you would not be embarrassed if he was sitting there to see you dressed the way you are. But modesty in the sight of God, I would say also modesty in the sight of brothers in this church and men out in the community. You should not be wearing them. To me, it's not my opinion. You shouldn't be wearing anything that would incite lust, sin in someone else, in your dress, whatever, however that works out, however you dress. But here's the thing. If a heart is not right, so I'm saying it's a heart issue, then guess what? All, all these accusations of legalism. You hate any suggestion that a dress or the way you're dressed isn't modest. It's bondage. Not because it's not right but because your heart's not right, a person, whoever that is, right? Because I'm saying a lot of things I'm hearing today that are called legalism, they're not legalism. It's just holiness. But it goes for guys, too. It works both ways, believe me. I mean, you know, there's things guys do and so-called Christian guys, like as far as they're built like a lot better than me and they're walking around with their shirts off. And all, I mean, how do you do that? I don't quite get that, so... The Bible says we're to dress modestly. So back in Mark 2, that's what it's talking. He's, talk, call, he's not saying, hey, give up your fasting. He's just saying you can't fast while the bridegroom's here. But there's going to come a time you will fast. And so somebody's going to dictate or even your own conscience telling you, man, you've got to be fasting all. You can put yourself in bondage and legalism that way. Stick with the principles. Be led by the Holy Spirit and how you dressed, how you fast, what you eat, where you eat, what you watch. So he's saying, hey, but he's telling these guys here in Mark 18, the Pharisees and John's disciples, the point is, he says, you're missing the entire point by your system. He says, I'm not adding something. I didn't come here to add something to your established system of 613 rules. He's saying, what I am bringing, and this is what he goes on to talk about with the new wine and the wineskins and the old cloth and the new cloth. He's saying, I'm bringing something that is totally unique. Totally unique and unlike anything the world has ever 
known. Because Jesus is doing what? You think about the things that he has done so far in this gospel. He's surprising the critics. Because they know what they think a holy person is expected to do and would do, and he's not doing it. He's not fitting the mold, is he? He's touching the unclean that they said, don't even get near that person. He's touching the unclean. He's forgiving sins freely. He's eating with sinners, and he's not fasting twice a week like they are. And he's breaking the Sabbath by helping people out and letting them eat when they don't think they should be. Oh, that's work. Like that's a great meal, you know, eating grain as you're walking through, grabbing something so you don't starve to death, right? So who is this man, the critics are saying? Who is this guy? What is this thing? The people are saying, what is this new doctrine that he's bringing? He's coming with power. Jesus Christ is coming, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's bringing something that has never been seen on this earth before. And that's the first thing I want to look at here, the bridegroom himself. It's Jesus that establishes this uniqueness, this new line. He establishes it. He's saying, in this verse, he's saying, I am the bridegroom. That's what he's telling him. God in the flesh. It's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah 62. God has come, and he's saying, I'm bringing a message and power that no other religious teacher or philosopher has ever brought. He's saying, I've got new wine here. New wine. It can't be contained in this old system you have. It was good for its day, but it is not going to contain this new wine I have, your old wineskins of all your traditions. And so what I want us to see here is it's the bridegroom. And true Christianity, I'm saying true Christianity, is never independent of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is dependent on him, Jesus himself, not on any system of righteousness or traditions. Because the heart of Christianity, and we need to get hold of this, the heart of Christianity is a person. It's a person, and we've talked about that some before. But that is what sets Christianity apart. It's what's setting him apart from this system that he's coming into here, Judaism. And it's what sets Christianity apart from any other religion or philosophy. Because you think about it, Buddhism and Islam, they do not depend on having a relationship with their founders or their teachers, does it? It all depends on the teachings and the traditions they have and that you keep them. So for a Muslim, he doesn't have to have a relationship <laughs> with Muhammad. He's dead and in the grave. They don't expect that. But what he's got to do is pray five times a day, give alms. He's got to fast during Ramadan. He's got to make a pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in his lifetime if he's able to. And as long as his good deeds outweigh his bad deeds in the end, he's got his virgins. He's got eternal life. It has nothing to do with the person. It's all to do with the system. And that's what we see here with these scribes and Pharisees. It's all about a system. They despise others that don't keep their system. And that's not what true Christianity is. It is, as we've heard many times, it's a relationship with the bridegroom, with Jesus Christ. And so what makes a person a Christian? What makes you a Christian? It's whether you have known and embraced Person, not whether you have embraced a system of works. So, whether you will feast or fast, it's not determined by a system. It's determined by your relationship with the bridegroom. I'll explain that in a second. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they had no relationship with the bridegroom, with Jesus. They had not bowed their knee to him as their Lord and Savior. Their relationship to God was what? It was totally a set of rules. That was totally what they had. And so think about it. When we come to the Sermon on the Mount, there are things that we should and should not do that are named there, right? But we're not coming to a system of rules that we obey apart from our Lord. We obey what the sermon says because we're obeying our Lord and Savior, right? We hear in that Sermon on the Mount our shepherd's voice guiding us in paths of righteousness, right? That's not a set of rules that are given apart from him. His voice is speaking through them. You have heard that it was said by them of old, this law, thou shalt not. That's impersonal. He's saying, but I, your Lord and Savior, I say unto you, resist not evil. 
I'm asking you that, disciple of mine, the one that's trusting me for eternal life. He's saying, I'm telling you, hear my voice. Resist not evil, but turn the other cheek. He says, I'm saying unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And that is our living Savior, unlike any other religion. This is this new wine. Unlike any other religion, our living Savior is speaking to us with his voice today through the living word. Is this word not alive? It is. You should hear his voice in that word. And so we obey why? Because we love him. And we're committed to following him. And let me take that into another realm here. I want to talk about this for a minute. What about trusting God for his promises? So we tend, I think, too many times to deal with the promises apart from the person of our Lord, right? So we think, ah, I got the faith message. I got faith tapes number one through six. Nothing wrong with those, okay? There's principles in there that are good. But it sometimes can become to where I, if I read the promise, confess the promise, somehow act like it's true, I hope it'll work. And then it doesn't work. Here's the thing we have to see, and we need to see this. He's the bridegroom. You rejoice with the bridegroom. You mourn when he's gone because there's a relationship there. So God doesn't separate. What we need to see, he does not separate answers to prayer apart from our living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to show you that. If you would, put something there. Turn back to 1 John 5, please. 1 John 5. So in 1 John 5, beginning in verse 10, we read this. John writes, He that believes on the Son of God has this witness in himself, but he that believes not God has made him a liar because he believes not the record that God gave of his Son. Verse 11, This is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And where is the eternal life? This life, it says, is in his Son. And look what it says in verse 12. He that has whom has life? The Son. He that has the Son, a person, has life. And he that has not the Son of God, he says, has not life. These things, he says, I have written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know. How do you know it? You know when you have him, the person, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. And he goes right into prayer and answers to prayer and confidence in prayer and receiving promises. He says, this, what I just said, is the confidence that we have where? In him, in our Lord, the one that we have. That if we ask anything according to his will, then he will hear us. And if we know that he hears us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petition that we desired of him. He's saying that's not the confidence we have in our ability to, to put the faith principles into effect. I'm not putting that down. I'm not. But he's saying this is the confidence that we have in him. The one that we have this relationship with, the bridegroom, the one that is going to be the one to answer that prayer, manifest that answer. It's got to come out of that relationship. And look down in verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding. What's the understanding he's given us? That we may know him that is true, and we are in him, Jesus that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ, who is the true God, the bridegroom, and he is eternal life. It's a person. Eternal life and the promise, it's all a person. We can't divorce him from that. And the question then becomes, is the person of Jesus Christ everything to us? Is he everything? So it's not the faith message, quote unquote, that brings healing and the promises, but a living relationship with the bridegroom. I read this just the other day by a man named Charles Price. This man had a tremendous healing ministry, seeing people healed, I mean, and understood what faith was. I'm going to listen to what a guy like this has to say. This was no made-up ministry. But he said this. He says, the steps to a great faith are very clear. 
And listen to this. He says, well, we know, what, number one, faith can move mountains, work miracles, bring to pass. We know faith can do that, bring to pass the promises of God. But he says, number two, we also know that only God himself can do that. It's faith in God that can do that. And he says, if only God can do it, then, of course, we need God. I'd say, oh, it goes without saying, well. And the last thing he said was, number four, only to the man who walks with God will he impart and give the faith to bring these things to pass. And he says, beloved, therein lies the secret of the attainment of faith. Get close to God. Get very close to God. Withdraw yourself from the noise and hubbub and clamor of the world of unbelief and sin, he says, and get alone with God. He says, men have lost their faith because they have lost their God. It is a well-known fact, he writes, that the depth and sincerity of a man's belief is measured by his nearness to God. Is that not true? That is true. It's more true, I think, than we have ever realized. He continued to say this. More than once, he wrote, in my humble ministry, I have done my best to help people through to a possession of the fullness of one of the promises of God. He said, we prayed, but the answer did not come. Now, here's a man that had an anointing on him and saw all kinds of miracles, but he's saying, hey, there are times I prayed. It, it didn't work. There was something not right. Well, look what he went on to say. We prayed and the, and the answer did not come. He said, then perhaps days later, they have come again, come to me again with a new step. Something's happened to them, he's saying. A new light shining out of their eyes. A new resonant ring in their prayer. Happiness and joy broke over the shores of the soul like waves breaking on the sands of the sea. He says, I'm looking at this person now that left me dejected because they didn't receive what they came for, the healing, whatever it was. He's saying, but now they left and they're coming back days later. And he's saying, I'm seeing a transformation on their countenance. Something has changed with this person. I've read other accounts where he said this happened with him more than once. And he said, what a difference. But he says, ask the question, well, what brought about the change? And you all are wondering, no. what if I shut down now? You'd all be so mad. But here's what his answer was. They have been closeted with God. They had discovered that in order to have the faith of God, as Jesus himself instructed his disciples, they must have God himself. They realized they were trying to get the promise apart from the promiser, the gift without the giver. And they had to get that right. Talking to Greg about that last night, I'm telling you that is a key thing that we all need to learn. You can't divorce the promises from the one who brings them to pass, our Lord Jesus Christ. A.B. Simpson wrote a great healing book. I'd recommend it to anybody that wants to know about healing. He had a tremendous testimony. He wrote a hymn, and the hymn was entitled Himself himself took our infirmities. But here's how the first part of that hymn goes. He says, A.B. Simpson said he had to realize that. He had to realize that it's the Savior I need, not the promises. That's not the thing. That'll come. But it's him I need. And he writes this hymn. It says, once it was the blessing. Now, he says, it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling. He says, now it is his word. He says, once his gifts I wanted, and now the giver own. Once I sought for healing, now himself alone. He got things right, and he walked in healing. He said he struggled his life, no energy, couldn't get anything done, a sickly man. He realized he had to receive the Lord himself instead of the promise was what he was chasing, and what he needed was the promiser inside of him, the healer. Christ in me, he said, the hope of glory, that revelation came to him, and he said, his whole life changed. So back to Mark 2. And Jesus is telling them here in these two verses, he's saying, hey, when my presence is with you in a tangible way, which he was then literally physically, he says, that is not the time to fast. When I'm here, he goes, when the bridegroom's there, you don't fast. And you think about it. I'll bet you there's nobody in here that has wedding pictures, that all that's on the table for the guest is water. Is that true or not? 
That's not the time you fast, is it? When you go to a wedding, or I would say when you come to a <laughs> one of our picnics we're having the other. That's, I mean, if you're fasting and you can do it with a smile, praise God, no problems there, right? Well, one time we had our family get together, and I had somebody in my family that young man, and he thought he was doing the right thing, I guess, but he was just the epitome of Matthew 6. Everybody's eating, everybody's laughing. I hadn't seen everybody for a long time, and he's looking like this, sitting in a chair, looking just miserable. I'm like, hey, what's going on? I'm fasting. You are? I said, well, that's great, but I said, you know, maybe you might want to just hold off for a few days, you know, and pick it back up again when you get back home, because I said, we're all having a good time, and you're spoiling it. Yeah, no, I wasn't going to listen to that. So anyways, well, I'm saying there's a time to fast, but when you're in the presence of the Lord, that is not the time, is it? So when you're experiencing an answer to prayer or a joyous occasion to the Lord, I'd say that is not the time to fast, so to speak. It's the time to feast and rejoice. You know, when the prodigal came back, the father, when the son comes back, he's not like, man, we need repentance, true repentance. Let's call a fast. Oh, what did he do? He called a feast. He said, we're going to kill the fatted calf. Let's eat and be merry, he said. You know when I think that man maybe fasted is before the sun came. Once he's back, that's not the time to fast. You know, before Thomas was born, I got before the Lord and fasted. In fact, I got convicted. I heard David Wilkerson say, man, I, I uh, heard somebody say they'd gone a year without fasting. I'm thinking, I think I've gone a year without fasting. Uh, we hadn't had, my wife and I are 31 years old. We hadn't had real good success with having babies. Pregnancies hadn't gone real well. And just like in the Old Testament, <laughs> with was it Jacob or Isaac? By both of them, they fasted on behalf of their wives. They weren't having, and that's what I did. Got before the Lord, I'm like, not because I was trying to earn a thing. It's just, God, we need your help. I'll do this. It's no problem. But here's the thing. God honored that. There he sits. <laughs> right? But when he was born... And the Lord's presence is in your house and your baby's presence is in your house. That wasn't the time to fast, was it? That's the time to rejoice. And you can't fast anyways because you've got like two solid weeks of food coming. You're crazy to fast. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm honestly, I don't know how it works for you all, but for me, I've said this. When we've had our babies and once the baby's born, that is probably the most joyful, relaxed, peaceful time of my life. I don't feel like I have to work. I got food in abundance. No more of that pressure about a home. I mean, it just praise God. It's a time to rejoice, and that's what the Lord's talking about here. But if you're struggling with sin, maybe, or you need direction in your life, you're dealing with a strong spirit in somebody's life, or you're just wanting to draw near to God. One time I fasted just because I, I didn't understand something that I felt was important. Way back when, I fasted, and praise God, he answered that. There's reasons like that. That's when you fast. But there are no rules, are there? It just all depends, we're saying, on your relationship to the bridegroom. That's when you know when to fast and when not to fast. Your relationship to the bridegroom, that's what Jesus is saying. And the second thing I want to see here in our text is that there is power in the new wine and the new cloth. So Jesus and his, the people in Jesus' day, they were shocked Shocked by what he said, shocked by what he did. And people today are shocked by what true Christianity is. So back then, we're saying this new wine has got power. And in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost came and the 120 were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues, and somehow that got noised abroad, and there were Jews from all over the world, the then known world, had come there for that feast, the Feast of Pentecost. And they're gathering around these 120 people saying, man, we are hearing them speak in our own languages. There's no way they could have learned all of those. And here's what it says. They were all amazed when they heard that. And they were in doubt saying to one another, what does this mean? And it said, others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. And they didn't know how right they were, right? They were full of the new wine Jesus had talked about. They were. And here's the problem. What Jesus said came to pass. That new wine of the early church, it wasn't going to work in the temple and with the established religious leaders in their system. It was a power, I'm saying, it's a power that couldn't be contained. And they tried to contain it because the power of the Holy Spirit that came in that early church, it exploded the temple system, so to speak, and it also turned the world upside down. 
That's the power of this new wine, the power of the Holy Spirit that should be in all of us. Burst the bottles. And so if you would turn over to Acts 3, please. Acts chapter 3. We have early on, just to show you what I'm talking about, we got Peter and John are on their way to the temple. And they come across this lame man, and he says he asked him for some alms that they can have. And Peter's answer to him was, silver and gold have I none. He says, but such as I have, I give thee. And here he says, here it is. It's his new wine power. That's all I have to give you. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And here's the subsequent actions that took place in verse 7 of Acts 3. It says, and he took him up by the right hand, Peter did, and lifted that man up and immediately... His feet and ankle bones received strength. And leaping up, he stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened with him. What is going on here, they're saying. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John... All the people ran together unto them in the porch that it calls Solomon's. It says they were greatly wondering. And so let me ask you, we're saying that new wine burst the system. And here it is in demonstration, a miraculous thing. It should be rejoicing. Same reaction Jesus got, though. Turn over to, or just, just look over in Acts 4. Here's the reaction of that. Here's what the religious system did. And it said, and as they spake unto the people... Because Peter took that as an opportunity to preach with that lame man and all the people around. And as they spake unto the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. They were grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for now it was eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed. And the number of the men was about 5,000. And then look what happened down in verse, skip down to verse 16. And they said, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them. That they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you have to judge that. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing was shown. And so they let them go with a threat. But when the church began to prosper, guess what they did? As the church prospered, they didn't just arrest one or two. They arrested all of the apostles. Because you're messing up our system. We can't have this. Look over in chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. It says, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least... The shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. And there came also a multitude out of the cities round about into Jerusalem, bringing sick folk and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they healed everyone. Verse 17. Here's how the new wine is received in the old wineskin. Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. That means jealousy. And laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So that's what we're seeing there. What Jesus said would happen. There is an incompatibility. The new wine and the new cloth with the old wineskin of established religion and the cloth of religious tradition. Well, what I want to say is, what did that new wine look like in the church? What does that new wine look like as it was manifested in the church? And we get a snapshot of it here 
Don't have to turn far. Right over in Acts chapter 4. Here's what this new wine looks like in a New Testament church. Acts chapter 4. They get together and they're praying after they had been threatened, Peter and John. And they prayed this, that by stretching forth thine hand to do what? To heal. That is a prayer of the early church, that God through them would heal supernaturally. And that what? Signs and wonders may be done how? By the name of thy holy child Jesus, the bridegroom, the new wine. Let it be manifested. And it said, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they did what? They taught. They spake the word of God with boldness. And verse 32 goes on to say, and the multitude of them that believed were of what? One heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common and with great power. So we're saying the new wine is full of power. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold. So what was present in the early church? What did that new wine produce? What kind of church did it produce? We just read it there. It was a church that had what? Corporate prayer. They prayed together to see God's presence manifested. Signs and wonders. They prayed for healings to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They had unity. Did they not? No divisions. Unity took place there. That's what the new wine should produce. They had fellowship with one another. Fellowship, that word means a sharing. So if you had an older person or a younger person and anywhere in between, needs were being met. They weren't met on an older person level or a younger person level. They were met all kinds of needs on every level within the fellowship of the church is how it worked. And we also saw they had teaching. That's what we have right there. There's a snapshot of what a new wine church should look like. Somebody says, what do you think the church here should look like? It should, I think it should look like that. Amen. That's my goal. That's my goal for our church. You know, does that mean we're going to have a miracle happen every meeting? Well, it wouldn't make me upset. Because <laughs> here's the thing. I grew up in a denominational church that was the modern version of Judaism. The old wineskin. That's what I was raised in. Catholics, they have just like Judaism, they have their rituals, they have their sacrifices, they have their priest with robes. Where do you see that in the New Testament? I see it in the Old Testament, the old wineskin, and they, all of my life growing up for 16 years, up to 18, and I went to the Catholic Church, dead sermons. I mean, I looked for life in a sermon as a kid. I really did. Just like it says that the scribes preached. And Jesus comes with new wine, and this is teaching that is filled with life and power. And I would have loved to have heard that. There's probably a lot of Catholics that just don't know any better that would like to hear a little life and power in a sermon. They might respond. I don't know. And as a young man, I can remember, I would try it. I thought, man, all this dead ritual, I know, I've still got that stuff memorized. I went to Mimi's funeral. I could sit there and you, you did that for 16 years every week. And I was an altar boy. Sometimes I did it five times a week. You know, you just... You don't forget that stuff. And that's how dead it was. But then when I got filled, the Holy Spirit got saved and I discovered life and truth and joy and praise in a meeting like this. I've never seen anything like that in a meeting similar to this up in Columbus, Ohio. And I'm telling you, it's never been in my heart to go back to that or anything even remotely like that or that would steal any of the truth I've had. Never had a desire for that because for me, the Bible became alive and real. That's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit did for me. I said I could read Proverbs and the Gospels, tried to, couldn't even make heads or tails of that half the time. Get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, next day start reading this. I'm like, I can't believe it. I can actually understand things in here that I never could before. God's opened my eyes. <laughs> Verse 
met the bridegroom in a real way. No longer was Jesus like he was for me in the Catholic Church, a figure on the cross. No longer that. He's inside of me. And the Holy Spirit, a living reality inside of me, makes all the difference in the world. He changed me. Made me a new wineskin. Praise God, that's what he'll do. You've got to be a new wineskin to have the new wine put into you. And we see a lot of people, they're trying to put new wine in their old wineskin, and it's going to burst you. And my goal then, like I said, <laughs> I'm saying when I first came in this whole thing, my goal then has always been I want to experience what I see in the book of Acts. Not going to be satisfied with anything less. Now, whether it happens or not, that's in God's hands. But that's, what, that's my desire. That's what I want to see. A church inhabited by the living God that is a balanced church. Like what we just read about in the book of Acts. There are gifts. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We need to see gifts here. We need to see healing, praise, ministry to each other, doctrine that will bring life, and a church that is not here but reaching out to the lost locally and abroad. That's what I see in the book of Acts. That is a New Testament church. I don't know any other kind of church. What, what else are we supposed to be here? What other pattern do we have? When the Bible says this is the pattern for everything we need, whether it's our own lives or whether it's the type of church we should belong to. Amen? <laughs> but here's the thing. You try to take your, your new wine experience and take that into most other churches. Honestly, you will experience what the early church, what the church experienced by the early church institution, not the early church institution, but the institution that was there, and that is rejection. That's the word I'm trying to get to. You're going to experience rejection just like they did, just like we just read. And they might let you join a church knowing you got the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but see how long they let you come into one of their meetings and you're anointed to prophesy and you do that, or you have a tongue and interpretation, or you want to raise your hand and share about how God just supernaturally healed you when you thought you were on death's door. How many times do you think you'll get to do that? Now, you can do that in here all the times you want to, and we will rejoice with you. When you're walking out of trial, how much encouragement do you think you're going to get? How much encouragement or prayer do you think you'll receive? And that's why I'm here. Because I will get prayer. I will get encouragement. I can operate in the gift, and maybe some people might look cross-eyed at you, but I don't think most people will. You won't hear it from me. I'll be glad. I'll be glad to see anybody operating. If you miss it and we've got to talk to you, fine. But you're trying, at least, right? Amen. I would, I would encourage all of us here to seek to manifest the Holy Spirit, God, to do it in our midst. And we all need to say, start with me. Not somebody else. Not wait for somebody else to do it. We all have that responsibility. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 says, God has set or placed in the church. And there's nowhere you're going to say where he's taken it away. But he's set or placed in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. And he goes on to say, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, have all the gifts of healings, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? The obvious answer is no, but different people will if they're seeking the Lord, if we're seeking the Lord, because he goes on to say, but covet, desire earnestly, the best gifts. He's saying, earnestly pursue the best gifts. And he goes on to say, not so you can be Mr. Big Dog, but why does he say to do that? Out of love for the body, because we need your gifts. Because everyone doesn't have the same gifts, and there are no unimportant gifts. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 is saying. If you're the little toe, buddy, try walking without your little toe. There's people that gimp around because they cut their toe off. You're missing your finger. Say that's not, it's all important. And so even here, there are plenty of ministry opportunities for anybody of all age. You come and talk to me. I don't care of your age. I will give you something you can do. Some, and it would be ministry opportunity. The problem is not everything's glamorous. Not every ministry opportunity is glamorous. But I say God uses the person that's not looking for glamorous. You just need to be willing to help. And then here's the thing. You're willing to help. If it's just sweeping the floor or pulling weeds out of the parking lot, well, I wouldn't do that. I want Holy Ghost ministry. Well, somebody's got to do it, right? 
that you do that, you're willing to do that, I'm just making a point. You're willing to do the lowest thing, scrub the toilet. You don't know what will happen. Because seven men were chosen as deacons in Acts chapter 6. And it said that they had to have certain requirements. They had to be full of the Holy Ghost, and they had to be full of wisdom to do what? Serve tables. Holy Ghost and wisdom to serve tables. Distribute food to wisdom. And you say, well, how much wisdom will be needed for that? Well, I'll tell you what, after being pastor a year, I'll say a lot. <laughs> much wisdom. Now, here's the point. How much glamour is there in doing that? How much glamour is there in going to a nursing home? How much glamour is there in fixing someone that's in here that's a widow, she needs her gutter fixed? How much glamour is in that? Making sure somebody's oil's chained that can't do it. There's not much glamour in that, is there? Just like there probably wasn't much glamour in serving tables, distributing food. But here's the thing. You read about those two deacons in the next two chapters of Acts. Two of those deacons. Stephen, it says he is outperforming signs and wonders among the people. Philip preaches and performs miracle, has a major revival in the city of Samaria, gets translated into the desert by the Holy Spirit, preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch. Or, yeah, God's using him everywhere. So I'd say God took men that were faithful in a little, right, and made them faithful in much. Because unlike the Pharisees and people that are the hypocrites and looking just for men's praise, those guys that are willing to do the lowest things, Jesus said this, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Amen? That's where it's at. So Jesus has come, we're seeing here in Mark. Jesus has come as the bridegroom. And I'm saying that is him as the bridegroom is the whole basis that is the foundation, the whole basis of true Christianity. It is what? The person of the Lord Jesus Christ that makes true Christianity unique and powerful, unlike anything else this world has ever seen. It's not dependent on a system of works, I said, but a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees, the scribes, and John's disciples, they didn't get it. They didn't see that Jesus didn't come to renew their system, to make it more alive or improve it, that he was God in the flesh. He's bringing life that could not be contained in their old system, in those old institutional religious systems. So here's the thing. Jesus didn't come to make your life better. You don't just add a patch of Jesus to your life because you've got some problem you want to get fixed, whether it's drug addiction, anger, a bad marriage, or depression. No, if he comes into your life, he's not going to put a patch on that. He's going to destroy your old life through the cross, your old garment. He's not going to just patch it up a little. He's going to destroy it. All your righteousness, that's what he did with Paul. Paul said, I counted it all as dung. Why? That I can have his righteousness. He's not going to patch it up. Patch up your old life and your good works. He's going to give you his robe of righteousness. That's what you'll have. And his power will explode your old man. It will. It'll get rid of it. And he'll make you what? He'll destroy that old man and make you a new wineskin, a new creation. And then he will be able to fill you with the new wine of his presence and his power. And he's done that for a lot of us, hasn't he? And he really has. And that's the message of Mark 2. That's what we're seeing there. The bridegroom has come to forgive your sins, heal your sickness, deliver you from evil spirits, teach you about the kingdom of God, and to fill you with the spirit of God. That is the life of God that comes into our soul, right? The new wine that is poured into us, the new wineskin. It's Christ in us, as we said, right? That's the key. Christ in us, the hope of of glory because the old temple it's gone it was gone in 70 AD it was gone before then but it was officially gone then and so who are the temple where is the temple that God now inhabits it's us individually and as a church we are the new temple the new living temple that the new wine can fill right and when that happens in our lives and in this church guess who's going to get all the glory it's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the one that will make it happen. Amen? That's the message tonight. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Hallelujah. 
Hallelujah. Father, I just ask that you'll just make it real to all of our hearts, Lord, that, that the Lord Jesus Christ, a person, is, is where it's all at, Lord. That is the person having him, having Christ, is the answer to all of our needs. It's not the healing. It's him we need, and then we will have the healing. The promise is in him and in his person. And I just ask that you will make that real to all of us and that we can see that there is power in the new wine. And he wants to manifest that power in our church. And I just ask that you'll cause us to yield, to obey, whatever needs to happen, Lord, that we can see what we read in the book of Acts happen here. We can rejoice and glory in you. And I thank you that you'll do that. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.